I have uh, switched our text that I was going to preach from. I'll reserve that text in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 until next Lord's Day. I will rather have you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. And we'll be considering verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> Still talking about Israel, past, present, and future, but simply looking at one more passage of scripture that speaks of the restoration of Israel and particularly focusing upon the promise here of the restoration of the land and what the Lord says with regard to that. Again, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 8. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries, whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. <clears throat> I believe that there is a confusion very often in the minds of, of Christians, sincere Christians, that leads them to deny the future national conversion of Israel uh, to Jesus Christ and leads them to deny a future restoration of the land to Israel wherein Israel will dwell in peace and safety. That confusion, I believe, exists from not properly distinguishing between Israel as a church in the Old Testament and Israel as a civil state in the Old Testament. Let me explain what I mean. The church of the Old Testament, I do believe, is realized by the church of the New Testament. The church of the Old Testament is superseded by the church of the New Testament. The church of Israel in the Old Testament and all of the ceremonial law associated with it have been abolished, have been terminated, and ended by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, and here Paul is speaking to uh, Gentiles, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, that is, with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, notice this, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What would this handwriting of ordinances be? It is the ceremonial law that made a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament. That has been taken away. It has been nailed to the cross so that 
the Lord forgave us of our sins, but he also nailed to the cross all of those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Matthew Poole, uh, who lived from 1624 to 1679, writes in his commentary on this passage we've just read, but he, that is Jesus, did effectually with the nails with which he himself was crucified, by interpretation, fasten the handwriting of ordinances to his cross and abolish the ceremonial law in every regard. Dear ones, the church of the Old Testament, and we're simply focusing right now upon the church, we'll talk about the state or the, 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 the nation and the state of Israel in just a moment, but just focusing upon the church of the Old Testament right now, the church of the Old Testament was a church under age, being taught by way of the temple, the priesthood, and ceremonies, various truths using all of these types and shadows as pictures, just as one would teach a toddler with pictures. It was a church under age. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. He's talking about the church of the Old Testament being like a child under age, before it comes of age, to receive the full inheritance that God has promised. The church of the Old Testament is, is like, uh, again, a church under age. The church of the New Testament is a church come of age that has received, again, uh, its full inheritance in Christ. This, again, I think, is very much taught as well in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, section 3, where it says, besides this law, commonly called moral, so there's the moral law, but besides the moral law, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, that is perpetual, that is something that uh, uh, binds all people, all nations, um, from time past to time future, the moral law. But, he's, but we read here, besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, notice, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament, terminated under the New Testament. In other words, the church of the New Testament is the full-grown son and heir of the promises that were made to the church in the Old Testament that was in its childhood. Thus, the Lord Jesus has indeed brought to an end the Old Testament temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the ceremonies, and has appointed a New Testament temple composed of Jewish and Gentile believers with a new priesthood or ministry under Jesus, our great high priest, and with his appointed worship in the New Testament and his appointed church government in the New Testament church as well. And so in the New Covenant, 
as we look at the church in the new covenant that is full grown, there is, again, only one bride of Christ composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. There is only one temple of God composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. There is only one seed of Abraham composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. And there's only one olive tree composed of believing Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, dear ones, we may rightly declare that the Old Testament church of Israel is superseded by and realized in the New Testament church that is composed of all nations. It's the same visible church, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's the same visible church as to substance, but different as to administration, outward administration of the ordinances that we find. It's the same person, to use Paul's analogy in Galatians chapter 4, the Old Testament church and the New Testament church are the same person at different stages of growth and development. A child in the Old Testament, an adult who inherits full, fully all of the blessings, its inheritance in Christ. And it's the same olive tree, to use the analogy of Paul in Romans chapter 11, that olive tree lived and existed from which Israel was taken the visible church from which Israel was removed, those branches removed due to their not receiving and believing in Christ. It had to exist if they were taken from it. And yet it's the same olive tree in which the Gentiles are grafted in, in which Israel as a nation will be grafted back into in Romans chapter 11. But the confusion of which I spoke earlier, I think, occurs <clears throat> when Christians declare that the blessings promised to national Israel, not ecclesiastical Israel, but to national Israel, are all realized by the New Testament church, then I think we're confusing that which is ecclesiastical that pertains to Israel, the ceremonies, uh, the priesthood, the temple, all of that which is been abrogated, terminated, and is realized in the New Testament church. But what about the promises made to Israel as a nation, civilly, not ecclesiastically, as a state? What about those blessings? Are those realized in the church? And I submit to you, I believe that those blessings made to Israel as a nation will be yet realized to Israel as a nation. Israel was both, as we've noted, a church and a state. The Old Testament church was typical of the New Testament church, but the Old Testament nation of Israel as a civil government separate from the church was not typical of and realized in the New Testament church. God has made those promises concerning Israel as a nation that she will be, as a nation, restored unto Jesus Christ. And she will be brought into the visible church of Jesus Christ. And also the blessing that she will have her land restored to her in which at that time, not presently, but at that time when God fulfills uh, that prophecy and, and his promise to her, she will dwell in safety. Uh, she will not have enemies surrounding her when that is realized, when the promise is realized. Presently, as we've noted in past sermons, Israel is under God's judgment presently as a nation because she has turned against Christ 
because she has rebelled against Christ. But the Lord will draw Israel to himself as a nation uh, yet in the future. <clears throat> Sadly, it seems <clears throat> that any mention of the promise of the land to be restored to Israel as a nation in the future is by many Christians looked upon as a return to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But I submit to you that is not required. We do not have to accept that that is the case. To simply talk about the restoration of Israel as a nation to Christ, bringing Israel to Christ, and in restoring the land does not mean that Israel returns to re a rebuilt temple or to a priesthood or to sacrifices or to the Old Testament ceremonies. Many people make that association, but that's not necessary. That's not required, I don't believe at all. I think we can distinguish and hold those separately. She will be restored as a nation to Christ, and the land will be restored to her, but she will be a Christian nation and worship the Lord as all the other Gentile nations worship the Lord. The same doctrine and worship and government of the church. Let's consider in our remaining time that we have this passage in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 5 through 8. And uh, then I do have uh, uh, two or three passages in the New Testament that I wanted to tack on uh, to our discussion, which speak, I believe, of Israel's restoration in the New Testament. Beside, we focused mainly all of our attention upon Romans chapter 11 about the restoration, but there are other passages I would submit to you in the New Testament that we should consider as well. But there's this one last passage that, and there are many others obviously in the Old Testament, but this one passage I wanted to leave with you in Jeremiah 23, verses five through eight, where again we read, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. In this chapter, chapter 23 of Jeremiah, the Lord condemns uh, the false and corrupt shepherds or pastors of the flock of Israel in verses 1 through 2. Though God promises that he will gather Israel back into the land and will give them faithful shepherds uh, to oversee them, to instruct them, to guide them, uh, in verse 4 of this chapter, it is not until we get to verses 5 through 8 of this chapter that we learn when will this take place? When will this occur that God will give to them these faithful shepherds, these faithful uh, pastors to lead and to guide them? And we see uh, that that uh, comes in these verses that we have already read the timing of this. It will be realized in the Messianic age between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Notice verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Who is this righteous branch? It's Jesus. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And verse 6, what will they call him? His name will be called the Lord, our righteousness. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus and his coming. So this, this time in which the Lord will restore Israel to the land and will give them faithful shepherds to lead and to guide them into his truth will occur in this messianic age of between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recall Peter tells us when Jesus was enthroned. Uh, we're not waiting for Jesus to be enthroned in the future. He was enthroned uh, in according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, when he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. That's when Jesus uh, again manifested uh, his, his royal kingship uh, over his church, but also all dominion and power and authority was given to him over all nations as well. But I... I believe that the full, fullest manifestation and extent of his reign will be demonstrated in the millennium. In the millennium, again, Revelation chapter 20 and many other places where it speaks of in the Old Testament that Jesus will reign over all the nations, all the kings will, will serve him, nations will bow before him, that is, again, the, the full, this fullest extent and outreach of Christ's kingdom during uh, the millennial period. We note in verse uh, 6, in his days, the days of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, when he reigns, notice, Judah shall be saved. Uh, this comports with all Israel shall be saved in Romans 11.26. This is talking about that same period of time when all of the nation of Israel will be saved. Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely, we read in verse 6. Judah and Israel will call Jesus the Lord our righteousness. Just as we call Jesus the Lord our righteousness, for he is our righteousness. Uh, we are only justified by his righteousness, declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. And it is only on the basis of Christ and his perfect and glorious righteousness that any of us can be righteous in his sight. We are in Christ and therefore righteous because he is righteous. He is the righteous one. The conversion of Judah and Israel to the Lord Jesus as a Christian nation, for that's again what basically we're reading here. It's Jesus that they will worship. It's Jesus they will serve. This is talking about their being saved and brought to Jesus as a Christian nation. Their conversion will also issue forth and they're being delivered out of the various nations where they have been dispersed to dwell safely, to dwell safely in peace in their land, in their own land which the Lord says will be a greater deliverance than even the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. John Gill uh, lived from 1697 to 1791, certainly no dispensationalist, notes in his commentary on this passage, they shall dwell in their land. He says, which has never been fulfilled as yet of the seed of the house of Israel or of the ten tribes, 
but will be when all Israel shall be saved. It will be fulfilled. I submit to you, this is not a passage, so I've not spent a lot of time on it. I, I think a brief and cursory uh, exposition of it still yields to us uh, the truth that's communicated herein. It's not an easy passage to simply dismiss because of its realization and fulfillment in the Messianic age when all Israel or when Judah and Israel will be saved and when they will dwell in their land safely. That has not been realized as John Gill says. That has not happened. It will yet happen as Paul says it will in Romans chapter 11. Just as Israel as a nation was delivered out of a nation, namely Egypt, and brought into the promised land, so there will be, this is what Jeremiah is prophesying, what the Lord is prophesying through Jeremiah, so there will be a future national fulfillment to Israel in being delivered out of the nations and restored in safety and peace to their own land as it says in Jeremiah 23, 8. Now, if the countries, notice it uses the term here in verse 8, speaks of uh, out of the north country and from all countries. Now, if that word countries refers to nations with geographical boundaries, and if Israel is to be restored, out of those countries and nations, how is it that we would not therefore draw from that that Israel shall be restored as a nation herself in her own land, as the Lord says? Let's move to the New Testament very briefly here. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, we read, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Here the Lord Jesus prophesied with very strong words of judgment against Israel as a nation for her rejection of the gospel uh, and her rejection of him that was sent to her by the Father. And these words are specifically directed against Jerusalem, Jerusalem in verse 37, as the capital city of the nation. And so it I think we ought to take this as, again, a reference to the nation of Israel, that this judgment is brought against not simply one city out of, out of uh, uh, Israel, but the, the, the entire nation that will be judged by the Lord. This, the temple and the nation was destroyed by the Lord. Uh, in verse 38, we, we read again, Behold, your house is left unto you de desolate. The house of, uh, of God, the temple, is left to you desolate. And so here we see that this occurred and this judgment fell upon Israel in 70 AD uh, by the Romans, with the hand of the Romans. But then in verse 39, there seems to be hope that is held out to Jerusalem and the nation of Israel when the Lord says that they will not see him from this time forward till, that is, until that time that ye shall say, 
Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The Lord seems to hold out hope that Israel as a nation will yet be restored to Jesus Christ and profess him to be the one, the Messiah, the Savior, who comes in the name of the Lord. This seems again to comport well with what Paul says in Romans 11:26, and so all Israel shall be saved. In all of the Old Testament passages and past sermons that prophesied that that would happen, that we've looked at. The very nation that rejected Christ will as a nation call him blessed. That hasn't happened yet. That yet, I, I believe, awaits fulfillment in the future. Another passage of scripture. Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 6 through 7. Incidentally, uh, I didn't uh, <clears throat> mention, but I'll leave this for you to look at. Likewise, if you are, as you have time, you might want to look at Luke 21, 24, uh, which is similar uh, to what we have just considered in Matthew 23, Luke 21, 24. But let's move on to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Now this is be just before the Lord ascends into heaven, after his resurrection and before his ascension. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, now these are the disciples of Christ, they asked of Christ, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. During the 40 days after Christ's resurrection and before uh, his ascension into heaven, he taught his disciples, we read in verse 3, he was teaching them during that period of time concerning the kingdom of God. Notice what we read in verse 3. To whom also, that is to the apostles also, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking, notice, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The Lord had been instructing them concerning things pertaining to the kingdom of God, pertaining to the, the visible church of Jesus Christ. This likely, the discussion that the Lord Jesus was having with his apostles during these 40 days was likely the reason for raising the question that the apostles raised concerning, again, Israel and Israel's place in the kingdom of God. Israel's place as to the church, the visible church of Jesus Christ. What place does Israel have uh, with regard to God's kingdom? Israel is a nation. Uh, is what they're talking about, or what the, uh, the disciples are asking about, is Israel is a nation. Uh, the question that the disciples ask the Lord, I think, implies at least these two truths. The first truth their question implies is that the kingdom of God, that is the visible church, has indeed be, been taken away from Israel as a nation. For how can it be restored to Israel as a nation if it was not first taken away? from Israel as a nation. Jesus said that was what would happen. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 43, therefore I say unto you that, and he's speaking to the rulers of Israel, 
Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, a nation consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Again, uh, the church, uh, the New Testament church. And so the kingdom of God, the visible church, will be taken from the nation of Israel and given to, again, an international nation consisting of Jews and Gentiles, the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. Likewise, you'll recall from our consideration of Romans chapter 11 and verses 17 through 21, there we also see that the natural branches were broken off from the olive tree. That is, Israel was broken off from the visible church, from the visible kingdom of God. They were broken off. They were judged by the Lord. And so, likewise, here the apostles are asking the question based upon the assumption that the kingdom of God, the, the visible church of Christ, has been taken away from Israel as a nation. So that's the first truth, I think, that underlies their question. The second truth that underlies their question is this, that the kingdom of God shall in the future be restored to Israel as a nation. When they say, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Again, the assumption is that, Lord, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. When is that going to take place? That had been probably discussed by the Lord and the apostles, the fact that the kingdom would be restored to Israel during the 40 days. Their question was not whether or not there would be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Their question was, when is it going to take place? When is it going to happen? That was their question. So neither of these truths does the Lord deny that the kingdom had been taken from Israel and that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Neither of those truths are denied by the Lord in his answer. His answer simply is, it's not for you to know when the Lord is going to bring these things to pass. That's in God's purposes. That's in God's decrees. That's uh, left to the Lord. And the Lord says, but ye, in verse 8, but ye shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. Get busy. Don't worry about when Israel, when this is going to take place. You simply... Be faithful witnesses for me. See, the Lord's silence, many times people who uh, do not believe that the kingdom will be restored to Israel in the future, uh, they, they want to say that the silence of Jesus to explicitly affirm that the kingdom will be restored to Israel uh, is a denial on the part of Jesus that that is going to happen. But again, we know um, uh, that it's a, it's a proverb, it, it's proverbial that silence uh, equals consent. Uh, that uh, again, that is on the part of the Lord Jesus in him not denying that that would be the case is his consent of those truths, that those truths will be realized. And in fact, as we've already seen from the Old Testament scriptures, the many different places, and we've only enumerated a, a handful of those places where it speaks of, of Israel 
uh, in the future. In the days of the Messiah, uh, coming to Christ, looking upon him whom they have pierced. In the midst of, again, great war and battle uh, within the land and in the, in the city of Jerusalem, and they look in faith to Jesus Christ, that has not happened where they have been rescued and saved and then dwell in the land in peace that yet is to be accomplished. And so again, that being so often the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, are we not to assume that unless God specifically abrogates and says that's not going to happen, but if there is, again, as in this case, silence on the part of the Lord Jesus, are we not to assume continuity unless he denies it? Are we not, are we not to, to assume that those promises continue into the future unless the Lord Jesus says, that's not gonna happen, I've changed things. This is the way it's going to happen. Sometimes, again, the fact that there isn't a, an explicit reference in the New Testament to the restoration of Israel to the land, it's taken to mean uh, by, by many that that's not going to happen. It's uh, the plan now is fully realized in the church of Jesus Christ, that there are no future promises uh, that God will fulfill to Israel as a nation and as a people, but I would take the position that if God has said it's going to happen in the Old Testament, unless he clearly says, no, it's not going to happen, that we should assume that it is going to happen. Silence, again, remember, silence equals consent, not denial. One last passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> but their minds were blinded. Whose minds? Uh, Israel as a nation. Their minds were blinded for unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ but even unto this day when Moses is read the veil is upon their heart nevertheless when it shall turn to the Lord the veil shall be taken away <clears throat> The context here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, reveals that Paul has in view, again, Israel as a nation. Notice verse 13, which we did not read, takes us back to Israel gathered with Moses at Mount Sinai. It says, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So the children of Israel, again, as a nation, so that's who we're talking about in this context of being blinded, Israel as a nation. This is the same word when it speaks of blinded in verse 14, but their minds were blinded. It's the same word uh, as is used in Romans 11. Speaking of the blinding of Israel in verse 7 and in verse 25, their minds were blinded as a, a judgment from God. So again, we're, we're talking about as a result of the rejection of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, judgment was brought upon Israel as a nation, a veil came over their eyes so they could not understand all of the Old Testament passages which speak of Jesus Christ. So as you talk to Jews today, and they interpret um, all of the references to the Messiah that the New Testament in particular says, this is a fulfillment of this and this and this, they completely uh, interpret those passages 
entirely different. Uh, many times where it's speaking of the Messiah, they say it's referring to uh, Israel rather than the Messiah. Uh, and particularly Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, they say, refers to Israel as a nation uh, that is the suffering servant rather than the Messiah. Why do they do that? Well, they've been judicially blinded, Paul says, veil over their eyes because they rejected Christ. They rejected the Messiah. They cannot see the truth until, until the veil is removed. And it shall be, verse 16, and the veil shall be taken away. Not might be taken away shall be taken away. Their blindness will be healed in the future. This is exactly what we find in Romans chapter 11 as well, that their blindness, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, thus all Israel shall be saved. Their blindness will be removed at that time. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verses 1 through 5. Turn there with me. I have you note again what the Lord himself says with regard to what will happen to Israel when they rebel against them, but what will happen to Israel as a nation when they repent. Notice again, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out into the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. This is all that we're saying about the future. Israel is going to repent. Israel is going to turn to Jesus Christ. All Israel will be saved. And God will, as he promised here and in many other places, therefore restore the land to his people, Israel, as a nation. As he drove them out of the land, so he will, when they repent and turn to Christ in faith, he will return them to the land as well. Now, application, as we draw near to the end of the sermon today, Material blessings are graciously included in God's covenant with his people. Whether his people be viewed as nations or whether his people be viewed as individuals, it is not only spiritual blessings that God brings forth upon his people who walk in faith and repentance and loving obedience to him. But he also blesses with material blessings as well. Now, I'm not promoting a heretical prosperity gospel here, okay? That's not what I'm speaking of. But dear ones, just as there is danger in the prosperity gospel, 
that God promises us immense wealth and perfect health if we only have enough faith. So there is a danger in going the opposite direction, which I call a Gnostic gospel, where only that which is spiritual is good and that which is material is evil. The spiritual blessings promised to us in Christ are certainly most important. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The blessing, the spiritual blessings of justification by faith alone, adoption into the family of God, eternal life, communion with Jesus Christ, sanctification and growth, conformity to Jesus Christ, our glorification, all of these are wondrous spiritual blessings and they are preeminent. However, I want you to realize, and I'm going to tie this in with what we're we've been talking about in just a moment with Israel, but I want you to understand this. Christ's redemption, his covenant includes the purchase of material blessings for us as well. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him that is in Christ are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us all the promises of God now are only the promises of God that God has made to us concerning only spiritual I'm um, only spiritual blessings is that all that God tells us that we have by way of promises that Jesus purchased for us? I dare say no. And again, Christ, I believe, purchased for us blessings as well that relate to our body as well as to our soul. For example, in Philippians 4.19, <clears throat> But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. All your need. Again, only spiritual needs or also bodily and material needs as well. I believe that the Lord taught us to pray in, in Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread. Because that is a blessing that comes from Jesus Christ. That is a blessing to us as God's people that he provides. And our daily bread is simply representative of all of our physical needs. Those particular promises in Matthew 6:33 but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that he's been talking about which is talking about God supplying our needs bodily needs food clothing shelter he's just been talking about that in Roman in Matthew 6 that we need not fear, we need not worry about those things because he will provide them for us. How are they provided for us? Again, I submit to you, they are part of our redemption. You see, Jesus didn't simply on the cross redeem our souls. He redeemed our bodies as well. That's why there's going to be a resurrection in the future, a glorious resurrection where our bodies will be conformed, we're taught in, in Scripture in Philippians chapter 3, will be conformed to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He redeemed our bodies. Why? 
If our bodies, again, are like the Gnostics say, evil, corrupt, if our bodies have no purpose except to be the carrier of our souls, and that's what's truly important, why would the Lord redeem our bodies? Why would he resurrect our bodies? Gnostics wanted to get as far away from the body as possible. Their idea of their special knowledge with God was, was uh, to be as far from the body as possible. The soul, the spirit, that's what was important. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not what Jesus has purchased for us. He redeemed our souls and our bodies. In fact, in Romans 8, 23, Paul says, and not only they, that is all of creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, to wit the redemption of our body. That's the resurrection. That's the resurrection, speaking of there. Even our bodies at death, dear ones, we are taught in God's word, our bodies at death. It's not just our souls as Christians that are united to Christ. Our bodies are united to Christ as well. First Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep, death, in the grave, in other words, sleep, in Jesus will God bring with him. Those who are dead, their bodies are united to Christ. That's what Shorter Catechism, question 37, says, summarizing that very truth. The question, again, reads, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. That's the soul, first of all. And do immediately pass into glory. And notice now. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. I find that so comforting to know that when this outer man dies, it's not going to be severed from Christ. And those who have known the Lord, believers in Jesus Christ who have preceded us, their bodies may be in the grave, but their bodies are united to Jesus Christ. And that's why they'll be raised. On that final day, that's why we will be raised to believe and trust in him on that final day. So what does this all have to do with the restoration of Israel? I, I think it's instructive to us, but I, I want to tie this in very, very quickly here. You see, it's not contrary to Israel's conversion to Christ for Israel to see material blessings promised to her, which will flow from her spiritual blessings. There's no inconsistency or contradiction that God would bless Israel with land as a nation if he has brought her to conversion to Jesus Christ as a nation. There's nothing inconsistent about that any more than when we are brought to Jesus Christ as individuals that the Lord blesses us in many ways by way of material blessings. He heals us, he provides work for us, he provides a home for us, these are all blessings that the Lord Jesus has purchased for us, his people. They are special blessings to us. That's also true of Gentile nations. 
that when Gentile nations come to Christ, he will, not just Israel, but Gentile nations, when they come to Christ, they will be blessed materially as well. Isaiah 2.4 says, And he, speaking of the Lord Jesus, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When nations turn to Jesus Christ, when the fullness of the Gentile nations is brought into the church of Jesus Christ, they will not learn war any longer. There will be peace. There will be safety. That's a material blessing. There will be prosperity as a result. God will bless the nations. And so the point I'm making is that material blessings ought not to be viewed as contradictory to spiritual blessings, but they flow together in God's covenant, in God's redemption, whether it be individuals or whether it be nations. God is not playing favorites with Israel in promising to her her land any more than he was playing favorites with Peter's mother-in-law when he healed her of that fever but did not heal Paul of the thorn in the flesh though he prayed three times. Was he showing favoritism to uh, to, uh, Peter's mother-in-law? No. Again, God can dispense those blessings as he chooses But there are material blessings that God does pour out upon us as Christians or as a Christian nation. We should not feel the need to spiritualize, therefore, material blessings that have been promised to Israel as a nation any more than we should feel the need to spiritualize spiritual uh, uh, material blessings that have been promised to us in the New Testament. Both spiritual blessings and material blessings have been purchased by Jesus Christ. But as I said, he disperses them as he sees fit for our own spiritual good and welfare. And so, in conclusion, let us not think that the material blessings of the land that are promised to a converted nation of Israel is anyway inconsistent with God's blessings in the new covenant of Christ's blood, where all recipients, by way of the new covenant in Christ's blood, which he purchased for us, were all recipients of Spiritual blessings, yes, preeminently, but also material blessings as well. Let us rather rejoice that God cares for us. He cares for us spiritually, but he also cares for us bodily. And he is providing for us. He is taking care of us, taking care of our families, feeding us, clothing us as his people, as a special blessing to us that he has purchased for us by way of the new covenant in Christ's blood. That is the same covenant that will bring Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ and will grant to her the land that he has promised to give to her. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank thee and praise thee for the spiritual, especially the spiritual blessings, but also we thank you for the material and bodily blessings 
that are ours in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yea and amen, all of them, whether spiritual or whether bodily. We thank thee, our God, and help us, Lord, to rejoice in these many blessings. Help us to be thankful, but also, Lord, to help set our mind to think aright. Therefore, if we enjoy these material blessings uh, in Christ, likewise will any nation that turns to Christ enjoy those material blessings as well and even the nation of Israel. Thank thee, our God, for thy holy word. Give to us, Lord, the love for it. Help us, our Lord, to walk in faithfulness and obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen.